Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here on this first Sunday in December. There we go. Uh, thanks for being here. If you want to take out your Bible and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, in the back, we have a little shelf with a nativity scene, and below that, uh, we have some, some great Bibles. We'd love to give you one. Ruth chapter 2. Ruth is in the Old Testament, and Ruth is bridging. Ruth 1.1 starts with this, during the time of the judges. It's bridging this time of just chaos and sin and rebellion and it seems like everything God had promised and God's people looked forward to had spiraled out of control and all hope was lost. And Ruth is this small book that bridges the gap from that time to the time of King David. And at times it seemed like the kingdom of God had begun to be established and God had begun to fulfill his promises. And so we find ourselves this week in Ruth chapter 2. And here is what God's word says. I'm going to read the chapter for us this morning. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant. Although I'm not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat down beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town, where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law who she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. 
Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabite said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. God, this is your word. Would you help us to understand so many cultural things that were relevant and understood thousands of years ago, and it seems like there can be a big gap with some of the things that are talked about in this chapter. So would you help us, through the presence of your Holy Spirit, to bridge that gap? Show us the timeless truths that are in this passage, and I pray that you would stir up our hope that you are working. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every year my family goes to the beach, and we normally go to South Florida where my mom's family is from. And uh, we go just north of, kind of in between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, which if you've ever been to that area, you know this is not a small town, quiet beach. This is uh, a big city, one of the most populated, densely populated areas in the country. There are people from all over the world, and the beaches are packed. And we would go every year on July 4th week. That was typically the week where we, uh, my sister and I didn't have any sports or anything going on. Um, in the middle of the summer, and so we would go. So my July 4th was usually spent on the beach watching fireworks, being the only English-speaking person in about a half-mile radius. It was a really cool experience to watch people celebrate uh, the freedom we had, and it was wild. There were people everywhere. They would close the bridges so you couldn't get onto the beach. It was packed. Well, as we've gotten older and had kids, we've tried to find some quieter places to take our little kids to the beach. That's maybe not as far of a drive. So one year, a couple summers ago, we went to Port St. Joe. Great, quiet place, Mexico Beach. It's, this was a very different experience for us. We would walk about a half block to the beach and set up, and we would look, and it'd be about a mile to the next family down there, be about a, a mile to the next family, and this was totally different. Small town, we felt like we had the whole beach to ourselves, and our kids loved it, particularly our youngest, who is a runner. Now, South Florida, I'm not letting Anila run five yards away, uh, <clears throat> much less a half mile. But we find ourselves in Port St. Joe, and Anila wanders down. It doesn't seem that far because there's no one else around. And then we're playing and building sandcastles in the water, and Anila is just booking down the beach. And she's not even looking back. She's running and running and running. And we kind of all looked at each other, and we thought, okay, somebody's got to go get her. So we go get her and bring her back, and then this happened every day. Every time we brought her back, every time we went to the beach, Anila's running down the beach. And she is going, she's, she has no plans to stop. And it's funny, as I'm reading Ruth 2, I'm thinking about the story of Anila running because she is not looking to see if we see her. She's trusting that we do. She has no idea the dangers of what happens if she gets far enough away. Or if she veers right and finds a way in the street, or if she veers left and finds a way in the ocean, she's running thinking, this is a fun game, because mom and dad always end up getting me. They always see me. I'm never out of their sight. And they always end up with me in their arms, and they're bringing me back. And I'm thinking of that kind of trust that Anila had running down the beach in Port St. Joe, Florida, is the same kind of trust that Ruth and Naomi have right here. That God sees them. And so they're running forward in faithfulness. 
Ruth takes some steps of obedience and faithfulness in this chapter, and Naomi encourages her. And they really don't have a whole, they're not looking like, God, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see me? They're like, all right, look, we're here in Bethlehem. I've got to step out and go get some grain so we can eat today. And much like a two-year-old running down the beach, God sees them. So I think what we're going to see from Ruth chapter 2 is that we can trust God because he never loses sight of us. We can trust God because he never loses sight of us. The first nine verses of Ruth chapter 2, I think, communicate to us the coincidences of God. The coincidences of God. Uh, Verse 1 starts off, and it seems kind of random. Chapter 1 ends on a low note. Naomi is sad. I might have done a little too much last week, making her seem like she was sinfully bad when maybe she was sad. Lynn did some helpful correction of me Sunday afternoon, like, hey, maybe here's some other perspective of maybe Naomi was just broken and bitter. I said, Lynn, I, I think you're right. So I'm not ashamed to stand up here and tell you, maybe I didn't get it fully right last week. Maybe I overemphasized some things, but Naomi is broken. She's empty. She's got nothing. And she's here with her daughter-in-law, husband has died, sons have died. They end up back in her hometown after her husband had led them away. When they should have stayed in the land, but he led them away, and now they're back, and they've got nothing. And then chapter two opens with something that seems totally unrelated. Hey, just so you know, file this away, there's a relative of Naomi's dead husband. Elimelech has a distant relative named Boaz. And what we learn about Boaz is that he's both outwardly wealthy and impressive. He's well-known in the community. He's a prominent man. But we also learn inwardly he's just as impressive because he's a prominent man of noble character. Now, file that away because we're going to come back to Boaz. So we, we meet Boaz in chapter 2. But then immediately we discover more about the needs of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth asked Naomi, can I go into the fields and gather grain? Now, here's some of this cultural gap we've got to travel this morning. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, God in his heart to care for the needy. We've talked about the vulnerable quartet, the poor, orphan, widow, and the foreigner or the the immigrant among you. God repeatedly in the Old Testament gives laws to care for those groups because they're vulnerable And he will judge the nation of Israel based on how they treat those four groups. He says, this is a test of your heart. Do you have my heart in the way you care for these? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, we read a verse that says this. When you reap the harvest in your field, hey, this is a farming society. When you're reaping the harvest that you worked so hard to plant, that prayed that it would prosper, and it comes time to harvest all your hard work, If you forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. It's to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. There are other places in the Old Testament that talked about, hey, maybe leave some of the corners of your field so that the poor, the orphan, the widow, the the immigrant among you could come and gather what falls to the ground. Now, this would have been the equivalent of today trying to make a living on recycling aluminum cans. This is not a a, a way to make a lot of food, get a lot of food, make a lot of money. I mean, it was pennies. It was crumbs compared to making a true living. But Ruth knew, we've got to eat. So, Naomi, can I go gather some food? We learn here about their needs. Their first need, their most pressing need is 
food, and the way to get food would have been a struggle. But she also knows that she has a deeper need. The most pressing need might have been food, but her deeper need was favor. Do you hear what she says to Naomi? Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? This word might be translated in your Bible as grace. It shows up in the Old Testament over and over. She understands surface level, pressing need, we've got to eat. But she also understands underneath that, I don't have a hope to find food if I don't find favor. And even if I find food, I'm hopeless if I don't also find favor. And as I'm thinking all this, I'm thinking, can you resonate with that? I mean, how many times have we had a felt need, a surface level need, and you're praying to God to meet this need, and you realize how crazy it sounds to make this prayer, to ask God for this thing, and then you realize and add at the end, God, this has got to be a gracious gift from you if you answer this. That's the situation Ruth and Naomi were in. Most pressing need, food. Deeper need, favor. Well then, Naomi blesses her. Yes, go, go ahead, my daughter. So, verse three, Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be, as luck would have it, she finds herself in the field belonging to Boaz. Remember the guy from verse one. Now the literal translation of this is awesome. Where in our copy it says, she happened to be. Literally, the translation is, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's this idiom in the Hebrew language trying to say, by sheer stroke of luck. And surely the author of Ruth is trying to get you to think, is it? Is this coincidence? Is this happenstance? I mean, she's in Bethlehem. How many fields could she have gone to? How many places could she have made her way to? But she just so happens, by stroke of luck, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz, who was a relative, who, had he heard Naomi's name and Elimelech's name, would have known, yeah, I do know cousin Elimelech. I know exactly who this is, from the same clan and the same tribe of the people of Israel. So as she finds herself there, we're meant to read this and go, is this luck? Is this coincidence? Is this the sovereign providence of God? And I think in these first nine verses, we're hearing the coincidences of God are working in ways that Ruth doesn't realize. She's running down the beach and God sees exactly where she is. So who is this Boaz? We've read a little bit in verse one, prominent man of noble character. Well, Boaz is as advertised. He shows up on the scene <clears throat> blessing his workers in the name of God and they bless him in return. Then he notices someone that he doesn't recognize, which would have implied that he has a familiarity with his workers. He's not a prideful, sit back, I'm not gonna learn your name because you're not gonna be here long enough for me to learn it anyway type of boss. He's an active, hands-on, I know who's in my field and I don't recognize this one woman. So he asks, who is this? And they say, this is the one that came back with Naomi he immediately knows who that is because he's heard 
in the town, remember the whole town said, could this be Naomi? He goes, ah, yes, I know. He's proactive to then go up to Ruth and approach Ruth, and he addresses her as daughter. He is already tearing down the walls between them. And then he gives her an invitation. Don't go to another field. Don't leave this field, as if to reiterate the first point. Stay close to my female servants. That would have been important for him to say because a female servant would have been very low in the harvester hierarchy. And Ruth understood and Boaz understood that Ruth is lower even than that. So for her to be told, stay close to the female servants, he's actually lifting her up to a higher position than she even deserves. Because someone who's out gleaning, a foreign widow out in the fields trying to get leftover dropped grain, the crumbs from the field, would have been lower than the lowest servant. And he says, stay close to them. Follow them. I'm actually going to provide protection and make sure my young men know not to touch you or take advantage of you. What a timely word in 2023. And then he says, drink some water when you're thirsty. But he doesn't even just say, drink some water. He tells her what kind of water to drink. When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. This would have been opposite. Israelite workers would have drank water that foreign slaves and servants would have drawn for them. But he says, no, no, we're going to draw the water. You come drink. He essentially tells her, Whatever it is you're looking for, you found it here. So we're a few verses in, and surely Ruth has found the favor that she was hoping for. How did she find it? Her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. She's out in faithfulness, taking steps that she knows she's got to take because she knows she's got needs, and God is at work behind the scenes because he has not lost sight of her. And what we find in Boaz is that Boaz has the heart of God that we read about in Deuteronomy 24 that allows these poor, vulnerable quartet of people to come and take grain because they're hungry, they're needy, they're vulnerable. God says, my heart is to provide for these, and God's heart in the law is that his people would have his heart, that they would love who he loves. And we see that in Boaz. He is surely a man of God. Boaz even seems to go above and beyond what's described in the law. He doesn't just say, sure, you can get grain that drops on the ground. He gives her this invitation to stay close and drink the water and get the grain, and you have found a place to be provided for here. Ruth has found provision for both her and Naomi. And what we see in these first nine verses is that even in Ruth's desperation, God has not lost sight of her. What seems like pure coincidence to us, she started her morning desperate. Okay, we're here. Naomi, we're in Bethlehem and we've got to eat. So can I go out and just try to see if I can find us some grain? And Naomi says, yeah. And Ruth says, I'm going to need the favor of God if I find anybody that'll let me get it. And then the field she comes to has this man that God has already prepared. What seem like coincidences to us are surely not coincidences for the God who Romans 8.28 tells us work all things for the good of those who love him. But before Romans 8.28 comes verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If weakness doesn't describe Ruth and Naomi, I don't know what does. 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes, prays for the saints according to the will of God. There are things that God is doing in your life because he has not lost sight of you that you don't know you need. God is working wonderful things in your life that you are totally unaware of because God searches hearts. The Spirit is praying for you in line with the will of God and we are most of the time totally unaware. In Ruth's weakness, she's not even sure what all she needs. Food and probably favor. Maybe this is you. The good news is that you don't have to know all that you need. And you don't have to know and be able to articulate the full solution to your problems. The good news is that the Spirit of God is already praying for you according to God's will. And God has not lost sight of you. When we give our needs over to God, we can then step out in faith like Ruth. Because we are confident that God is watching and that God is working. As we move out of verse 9 into verses 10 to 13, we see in Ruth the faith that works. We've seen the coincidences of God. Now we're seeing the faith that works. Not a faith that just sits down and does nothing. It says, God, why don't you do something for me? We're seeing faith in action. So here in verse 10 is Ruth's response to Boaz and his invitation. She's finding the favor that she was looking for in verse 2. She finds it by being noticed by Boaz, and she finds it although or in spite of the fact that she's a foreigner. This is what she says in verse 10. Why have I found favor with you so that you notice, although I am a foreigner? Now, the word notice and the word foreigner, if we were native Hebrew speakers, we would see a connection between these words. Why do you notice me, the unnoticeable? Why are you familiar with me, the unfamiliar one? There's a connection there. So she is saying, uh, why? Thank you. I recognize God's hand at work, but why are you doing this? And Boaz gives an answer in verse 11. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. He essentially says, you're faithful. You're faithful to Naomi and you're faithful to God. And I see that your faithfulness to Naomi has come at a great cost. You left your father, mother, and native land, and you've come to a new land. And that put her in a long line of God's people who have done the same thing. Think of Abram leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, saying, God saying, I leave the land of your fathers, and I'm going to show you where to go. And so he leaves. Think of God's people who are foreigners in Egypt, and God saves them out. The only, though it wasn't their home, originally, for 400 years, it starts to feel like home. God says, we're leaving. And I'll show you where we're going. Now Ruth, too, is far from her homeland and is looking for the home of God. Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi and ultimately to God have come at great cost. And Boaz recognizes that. Boaz says that his favor to her is the proper response of her faithfulness to God. Boaz says, you're wondering why? Look at your life story. You have 
clung to God with all that you have left and you've been willing to let go of everything else, what else should I do but provide for you and show you favor? And he talks about Ruth's kindness and her faithfulness. And that's a word that shows up all throughout scripture. He is simply recognizing in Ruth her faithfulness to God. But as we read this from Boaz, listen to these phrases. How you left your father and mother and your native land. Just take just a second. Does that, does that make any alarm bells go off? If we could have a hyperlinked Bible, that was, this would be blue and underlined and it would send us in two directions. The first thing that comes to my mind is actually pointing back to Genesis chapter two, right? You will leave father and mother and you will cling, cleave to your spouse and you'll become one flesh. So the author of Ruth, if we can have ears to hear it, is trying to get us already to plant seeds of a potential marriage here. It's not full-blown yet. That'll come in the next chapter. But, but the author's trying to say, wait, this phrase has come before, leaving father and mother so that you're ready to cleave to a spouse. But the other direction it sends me is to the New Testament. Jesus spoke words that were very similar in Matthew chapter 19. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. I mean, that is eerily similar to the words Boaz is speaking here. You have left your native land, your father and your mother. And Jesus says, whoever does that will receive a hundred times more than everything they left. You're gonna receive a reward that is infinitely better than everything you've left behind. And that's essentially what Boaz says in verse 12. May the Lord, he, he speaks a blessing over her. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. All that Ruth left behind, her faith that in God that put her to be uh, faithful in her works, that put her to take a in a position to take action based on her faith was costly. It cost Ruth the ease of simply returning to her homeland like her sister-in-law Orpah did. It cost her the poverty of being lower than even the servants in the field and being faithful to Jesus will cost us too. Being faithful to Jesus will cost us too. Because there will be moments, there will be spaces, there will be relationships where we do not belong as those who are loyal to King Jesus. There's gonna come a time in about 11 months from right now that we're gonna stand in front of a voting booth and we're gonna look and we're gonna say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I'm not sure what box to tick here. Do I vote for the party that seemed to prop up a coup on the White House or do I vote for the party that on the news yesterday, one of their politicians said, yeah, I think a greater threat than Al-Qaeda is the Christianity of the new Speaker of the House. Uh, I don't find a home in either of those places. Now this world tells us we better find a home in one of those because you're known more for what you're against than what you're for, so pick a side. 
and stay faithful to that side. And if you say anything positive about the other side, you're a flake. And if you say anything negative about your side, you're a traitor. And we say, this is gonna cost me, isn't it? Because I can't be on this side and be silent about the sins I see. And I can't be on this, this side and be silent about the sins I see over here. What's it gonna cost us to be faithful to Jesus? What's it gonna cost our children as they go through school and they see friends diverting off wild and wicked paths and try to maintain loving relationships while at the same time holding to the truth of the way God has created the world? What is it going to cost us to say, no, there is a one way and it's Jesus? I can't tell you, friends, all that it's gonna cost you. But the Bible does tell me enough that I can tell you whatever it will cost you, you will receive a reward that is a hundred times better than whatever you give up. We can follow the way of Ruth and we can leave everything behind that we've tried to find comfort and identity in and instead lean into the faithfulness of clinging to the one true God. Ruth's final response comes in verse 13. She says, my Lord, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I'm not like one of your female servants. She's, she's acknowledging she's less than the lowest servant. She's the lowest rung on the social ladder. She gave up everything to remain loyal to God and now socially she is the bottom. She gave it all up without knowing how God would provide for her and she knows, Boaz knows, it's all worth it. We always gain more in God than whatever we give up on earth. Now the last section, we see Boaz take actions on his words. Verses 14 to 23, we see the overflowing provision of God. First, Boaz invites Ruth to the meal. Now, let's cross this cultural gap for just a second. Eating was as much social as it was practical, okay? So here's what that means in very common terms. They didn't share a table with AirPods in and Spotify playing, okay? Eating wasn't done with a bunch of people who were ignoring each other, focused on the Big Mac combo in front, and they just happened to be in the same restaurant. Eating was social. It was a way of not just welcoming someone to your table, it was a way of welcoming someone into your life to say we're equals and we can share a meal together. So he invites her to the table as a way of saying, you belong here, you are welcomed here. He invites Ruth to the meal, but second, he provides for her. He doesn't just invite her to the meal and then ignore her at the other end. He says, have some bread, dip it in the sauce. He offered her not just grain that she could take home and cook, he says, take some of the cooked stuff too. She ate, was satisfied, and had leftovers. Then he tells the men to take out some bundles for her and set them aside so that, hey, if she's getting the crumbs, hey, we're eating pizza and we're not eating the crust, let's give her the crust. He says, hey, can you take just a whole pizza and just set it to the side? Give her the whole stock. We're providing for her over and above what she's expecting. And then he actually serves her himself. What an act of service from a provider and a redeemer is this ringing any bells this Advent season. He gives her more than she needs so that she has some left over. 
Third, we see Boaz protect Ruth again. He orders the young men to let her gather grain. Don't humiliate her. Don't rebuke her. So then Ruth leaves in verse 16 with an abundance. He goes above and beyond, allowing her to take uh, just bits and pieces from the ground and what falls. He instructs the people to set stalks aside for her so that she can have plenty. And it says she leaves with some ancient measurement full of barley. And Ephah and Omer, now an Omer is, a, is an interesting word. It's a transliteration. An Omer literally means a donkey load. And if you've ever read the King James Version, they don't use the word donkey. Okay? So we can just, all right, it's not Family Worship Sunday. Kids are in their classes. It's an awesome word, okay? I had an Omer of work this week. Um, but these measurements, it's like, what do we do with this? How much was this? She takes home so many courts, so many leaders. You read this in the Old Testament. What, what, what scholars believe is she had taken close to 30 pounds of barley. Now, other ancient writings we have tell us that the average person, if you were a worker like this, it was pretty customary for you to get one to two pounds in a day. So here she is getting a full month of provision in one day. Is this just an incredibly lucky day? Is this another coincidence? Is this another happenstance of her ending up in this field and she happens to get this much and she comes home to Naomi and goes, I don't know, look at all this barley I ended up with. Or is this the favor of God on Ruth and Naomi's behalf? Ruth brings the barley and the leftover roasted, cooked barley to Naomi, which would have been a shock. She's expecting her to come home with maybe a pound of uncooked barley, and she shows up with maybe that much that's already cooked, ready for Naomi to eat. Naomi doesn't even need to know how it happened before she begins to bless the person that made it happen. That's how much of a miracle she recognizes that this is. It would have been shocking. To gather grain was one thing, but how did she get it cooked? How did she get this much? What kind of favor of God was shown to Ruth that day in the fields? So when she asks and Ruth offers an explanation, she says, well, yeah, it was, it was Boaz. That begins to explain everything. And what we see is that this is the gift that she didn't notice was Boaz himself. The explanation is that Boaz is not just any man. Naomi responds in Ruth 2.20, very similarly to what she hoped for in Ruth 1.8. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he's not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. And in chapter one, verse eight, she says, may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. God's covenant faithfulness continues. Boaz, we learn from Naomi, and Naomi tells Ruth, is not just a wealthy and kind field owner. He is a family redeemer, or maybe your translation says a kinsman redeemer. This was, again, a part of the law in which God had given the land to the people and said, for some reason, your clan, your family might have to lose their land. There might be economic hardship. Someone might make poor decisions. Someone might die sooner than they're supposed to without an heir to take the land, and you might lose your land. God gave provision that every seven years there would be a Sabbath year, every seven sets of seven, so about 50 years, there would be a year of jubilee in which all the land was meant to be given back to the original owners so that there would be no perpetual slavery, perpetual debt. 
but he also provided another way for families to get their land back. There can be someone in the same clan can come along, and rather than a foreigner owning land or some other tribe owning land, a family redeemer can provide redemption for those too poor or weak to do it themselves. It would have been a close male relative of the same clan who had other also responsibilities. We read about the kinsman redeemer in Leviticus chapter 25, if you want to go read more about it. The family redeemer had a responsibility to repurchase property that was lost due to extreme circumstances. They would have also redeemed relatives whose poverty forced them to enter slavery. They get into debt, they have money problems, and they say, I can't pay you back, I'll be your slave to pay you back. A family redeemer can come along and say, I'm gonna buy their freedom. They would also avenge the killing of a relative by tracking down, and the 2023 version would be pressing charges, the Old Testament version is executing the killer. They would have been the recipient of money that was paid as restitution for a wrong that was committed against someone in the clan, and maybe that person who was owed the money is now deceased. They would have assisted in lawsuits. Daryl Bach notes that kinsmen redeemers played an especially important role in helping and redeeming family members who cannot help themselves. The custom of redemption, he says, was designed to maintain the wholeness and health of family relationship even after the person has died. Naomi says, this man is not just help for our temporary problems, this man could provide an entire future for the both of us. We went today looking for some food and we found more food than we knew what to do with. But in finding the food, we also found a man who can redeem us for the rest of our lives. This is a family Redeemer. We're going to learn more about what all that means in chapters 3 and 4. But Naomi identifies Boaz to Ruth as a potential long-term solution to their plight. This one day was wonderful, even miraculous. But Boaz is more than just one day of provision to them. He is hope for a changed life for them and their future generations. Throughout this passage, we see God at work behind the scenes to provide. And then at the end, we learn God was behind the scenes in a much bigger and grander way in the person of Boaz. It's bigger than what Ruth could have imagined. It's bigger than what Naomi could have imagined. And we've already had a hint in this text that Boaz is gonna provide more than temporary food and protection. And what this chapter makes me think coming to the end and knowing that God's at work behind the scenes is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. God, who can do abundantly more than all we ask or think is at work. As we finish the book of Ruth, we'll learn more about how God provides in all of these great ways. But for now, we know that God sees Ruth and Naomi in their darkness, in their desperation, in their despair, and he provides more than they could ever imagine. And friends, as we celebrate Advent, that message is for us. In our darkness, in our desperation, in our despair, God never loses sight of us, and he always provides more than we could ever ask or imagine. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was complete, the ESV says, when the fullness of time has come, what that means is, 
God's time is not our time. We might be enduring a season of desperation and despair, of hopelessness, of darkness, of sadness, of depression. God sees you. He has not lost sight of you. We know that he's not lost sight of you in this season because the grander, bigger picture is that God has sent his son to save you. And at the end of Romans 8, it says, if he has not spared his son, what else will he spare? Will he spare anything for those that he loves? Surely not. Surely not. Advent is a time we remember what it's like to long for God to come and provide salvation. So we try to put ourselves in the shoes of Ruth and Naomi, who have nothing, who have no provision. They have no hope, and they need God to come through. We put ourselves in their shoes, and that is the feeling that we're trying to conjure up in Advent. God, I'm longing for you to come and meet me here. Do you still see me? The time is dark. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring salvation. And then Christmas comes, and we celebrate the faithfulness of God. We sing, oh, come all ye faithful, and it says, come to Bethlehem. Well, Ruth and Naomi were also invited by God to come to Bethlehem, and when they arrived, they were met with the provision in a manger born to an unwed teenage mother, an infant born in glory to be our salvation for all eternity. At the end of this chapter, Boaz invites Ruth to stick around for the entire harvest, and that's exactly what she does. Not only the barley harvest, but even the wheat harvest. This is probably a matter of a couple of months. But on this night, after the first day of work, I'm sure they had trouble getting to sleep. I'm sure they couldn't stop recollecting, and Naomi couldn't stop saying, so, 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 so tell me again, he comes up to you, and what does he say? He, he, no, he noticed you like right when he walked in the field, or, or did he kind of do some other stuff? Was it a few hours? T tell me again. And they just keep walking over and looking at all the barley, the 30 pound, they're going, I, I just can't believe 24 hours ago we had none of this. And I'm sure it was hard to get to sleep that night because they had seen God provide more in one day than they had seen him provide in probably their entire lives. They had just met someone who can change their lives. And as they laid in bed that night, they had to have been thinking, what would God do tomorrow? So friends, no matter what your situation is, God sees you. In the darkness, God sees you, and God is working. That's the good news message of Advent. And we too can live with wonder and expectation, asking what is God going to do next? Let's pray.